All right, well, good morning, everybody. Good morning. Thanks, Bob. You guys came ready this morning. Good, good. If you've got a Bible, go ahead and turn to Revelation chapter 4. What we just sang, holy, 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 uh, forever to the Lamb, right? Lord God Almighty, that's uh, inspired by Revelation 4 and Revelation 5, what we'll be doing today and then going through next week. So I'm excited to go there uh, with you. Uh, Before we jump into the text this morning, just let me say uh, a few things. One, uh, guests, welcome. Uh, We always get a chance to welcome LifePoint family, but guests, if you're here today and it's your first time here, we're thrilled that you're here. Uh, There's a resource I want to point your attention to, and this is if your first time or maybe you've been here for uh, a few weeks or a few months, uh, but you haven't had a chance to connect with us yet. I want to encourage you to utilize this resource this morning. Uh, There are some QR codes in front of you. You can use the QR code on the chair in front of you, or you can just type in lpguest.com, but uh, the scripture notes are going to be there for you, uh, along with the guest information card that just gives us a chance to connect with you. So please utilize that resource uh, there this morning, and we're thrilled uh, that you're here. Uh, with us. Also, um, universities, colleges are back in full swing. So uh, we've got our college students back with us this morning, OWU, and some SEU students and others. So can we just welcome them? We're grateful that they're here this morning. Um, Glad you guys are back. Uh, And then finally, I want to mention something that's coming up in a couple of weeks. So on September 10th, we're going to be celebrating something that day and also asking folks to step forward if you're interested in being a part of this. So we have a relationship with uh, an organization called Children's Hope Chest. And through Children's Hope Chest, we really have a relationship with a a community in Uganda, in the Jinja district of Uganda. And so uh, what we do as a church is uh, we come alongside and partner uh, community to community to kind of build a two-way transformational relationship there that allows this community just to unlock the giftings that God has given them. And so specifically that's in orphan care and orphan prevention. And so we as a church community sponsor through individuals who give money each month uh, in our church, we uh, sponsor or partner alongside of 193 kiddos right now in that community. We've got a team who's there right now in Uganda uh, celebrating with those kids and just building relationships. So on September 10th, we're going to do a little bit of a, a relaunch. So we're looking for a hundred more folks to step forward and to come alongside and partner with one of those kiddos. And there's a little bit of shift in the language and the model in which we're using. Instead of sponsor language, and there's nothing wrong with that, we're moving to what's called a friendship model. So uh, really basically, instead of us seeing a bunch of photos of the kids and us choosing them, they're gonna see a bunch of photos of us and they're gonna pick us. And uh, it gives them, I think, a little bit more agency, a little bit more just power to say, hey, man, I get to pick the person who's gonna be my friend, and so uh, it's a really good thing for that kiddo, and, uh, and so we're going to, that day, um, Lindell Bell, our missions director, if you have any questions about this, you can reach out to her now just to ask some details, but on that day, we'll have iPads here, and you can actually sign up that day uh, to come alongside and be a friend of one of these kiddos in this community in Uganda, and so again, if you have questions, reach out to us, but just be aware and be praying towards that. Uh, it's $45 a month to become one of their friends, and we'll be talking about that again on September 10th. All right, well, we kicked off, like I said, uh, two weeks ago, our series that we're calling uh, New. We're studying our way through the book of Revelation, headed towards the time and the day where Jesus comes back and he makes all things new. And if you missed weeks one and two, I want to encourage you to go back uh, and listen to those. So if you uh, are on our website, make sure you're on the Delaware tab of the website and just hit on the right side, there's a drop down, uh, hit messages, right? We record all the messages here and we upload those by 2 p.m. on Sundays. I want to encourage you to go back and listen to those too because we cover 
covered a lot of ground and some really important things about what Revelation is. And so I'll give you just a brief summary because uh, I think it's important. Weeks one and two, we talked about the, the book of Revelation being three things, okay? It's, uh, apo- it's uh, apocalyptic literature, right? Uh, it is prophecy and it's a letter, right? So it's apocalypse, it's prophecy, and it's a letter. And the reason those are important, so apocalyptic literature and apocalypse, this is where things typically get really weird for folks and why sometimes the book of Revelation can be so intimidating to us because apocalyptic literature uses really vivid imagery to help explain and symbolize uh, true things. It's not all made up, but the images and the symbols, they're symbols representing real things. And so we're going to see today some things that seem pretty wild, four living creatures and these 24 elders around the throne. And and there's a lot of times we get caught in the speculating, what exactly does that mean? But they're symbolic of, of ultimate reality. So apocalyptic literature doesn't teach us a lot of new things. It uses vivid imagery and symbols to capture our imagination, to help us learn things at a more deep and lasting level. Now, prophecy, it's also prophecy, both in what we called last week the foretelling aspects and the foretelling aspects, right? So foretelling is really just saying, hey, these are true things. There's a way in which prophetic uh, literature kind of cuts through the nonsense and helps us understand what is really, really true and important, foretelling. But it's also foretelling. There are some things that Revelation talks about, about the future. Lots of it, reality right now, a fair bit of it, hey, This is when Jesus returns. So there is foretelling aspects to it. And also, it's the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. So many things you read in the Old Testament keep talking about this person who is to come. This day that God's going to build a new covenant with his people. This day when we're going to have a new relationship with God and he's going to take the law and he's going to write it on our hearts. All of that is coming true in Christ. Jesus has accomplished that through his death and resurrection and will finish it with his return. And then finally, it's a letter. And this is the one I think that sometimes gets missed. It's a letter, right? It's from Jesus to John and from John then to the churches, to the early Christians in the first century. And it's a real pastor giving real encouragement to these first century Christians who are under intense pressure. And he's encouraging them, stand faithful and stand firm in light and in the midst of that pressure. Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. That's why we said last week, the big idea of the whole series, something we'll say every week is this, Revelation is more about present hope than a future calendar. The purpose of reading Revelation is not to put together some sort of secret code and calculate the day of Jesus' return. The purpose of reading Revelation is to be comforted and to be confronted and to be encouraged to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus and live faithfully for him in the midst of our current cultural moment until he returns. It's, in essence, Jesus saying, guys, I know things are hard. (laughs) I know the world is not yet as it should be, but I have come, and I have rescued you, and I have redeemed you, and one day I will come again. And so it comforts us. It encourages us, knowing our king is coming again, but it also confronts us, and it confronts us with the question of, how are we going to live our lives right now? Are we going to live our lives for the things that simply don't last this world, or are we going to live our lives for the kingdom and the king that lives and lasts forever? Now, 
This morning we're headed to the very throne room of God. Um, Chapters 4 and 5 are really incredible just to read. Much of the rest of the book of Revelation kind of comes out of 4 and 5. They belong together. I wish we could cover them all in one morning. There's just too much there because they are so connected. This morning, as one commentator put it, chapter 4 is really celebrating the God of creation. And and then next chapter, chapter 5, the attention shifts to the Son of God, the God of redemption. And so we're going to look at those two over this week and next week. I want us to remember the context, though, as we, before we read chapter 4, so John the Apostle, right, those who have been here the last two weeks, you know this, he's been exiled to the island of Patmos. He's in his 80s or maybe even 90s, and he's been exiled there because he has stayed faithful to Jesus in the midst of a culture uh, that is difficult. So the Roman emperor, Emperor Domitian at the time, right, Caesar has declared to all of his citizens that everyone must worship him as Lord and God. And so Roman citizens, all Roman citizens were to go into the temple and take a little bit of incense and throw it on the altar and say, Caesar is Lord. And they were to add him to the pantheon of gods. And, and for Christians, right, this was a huge deal. Very tempting to cave. Very tempting to go and just get it over with, right? That way we can move on with our lives. And yet John and the early Christians, many of them say, no, we're not going to do that because Jesus is Lord. And we won't declare anyone else. We will not give our worship to anyone else. And so for that, he is exiled to Patmos. There have been, by some estimates, 40,000 Christians killed during this time across the empire. As from the Roman throne, right, pressure and persecution emanates. And in light of that, under this crushing pressure from the throne of Rome, God gives to John, Jesus gives to John this vision of another throne, reminding him, reminding us of who is truly in charge, even when things look bleak. And so this is what we see, Revelation chapter 4 verse 1. It's in, in essence, right, chapters 1 through 3, we've gotten one vision, Jesus speaking to the churches. Now the scene changes, right? New scene shows up. And John says, after this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And don't miss that. Circle underline the, the look and the behold, okay? The most common verb in Revelation is look, <laughs> right? Look at this. It's what, what did John see next? So, so the Lord wants John, and he wants you and me. John wants us to see something. I want you to look at what I'm looking at. I want you to behold it. And it's very interesting to me. Daryl Johnson points this out in his book. He says, man, the first, the most common verb in Revelation is to look. And the second, mo- second most common is don't be afraid. And he says there's a connection between those two. When you look and you see what John is looking at, it gives you courage and takes away fear. And so he says, behold, look. And the first voice, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, there it is again. Look at what I'm looking at. A throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian. Those are precious stones. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. So this is where people start to get lost, I think, right? As I read commentaries this week, everybody's got a little bit of a different opinion on what does all this represent? I I think the common themes are, man, Jasper and Carnelian are these beautiful kind of translucent, reflects light, but also lets light through it. They're just gorgeous. And so this is John, once again, if you remember last week when he got a vision of Jesus and he's just pulling for whatever metaphors he can to say, look at him. Look at him in all his glory. Here again, he's looking at the one seated on the throne going, I don't even know how to describe him to you. 
He's the God, he's the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. He's like Jasper and Carnelian and around him is this rainbow. And I, I think the rainbow, yes, is a reference back. If you remember the first thing that Noah sees and his family sees when they get off the ark is what? It's a rainbow. It's a symbol of God's mercy right after judgment. And that's going to be really important as we go through the rest of the book because a lot of of revelation is the judgment of God against the evil of the world. So seeing and being reminded of his mercy is important, but also there's so many references in Revelation back to Ezekiel and back to his Isaiah, Ezekiel chapter one, he gets a vision of the throne of God and he sees this rain. He's like, it's like the appearance of a rainbow. He's like, it's just gorgeous. Like it's beautiful and it's radiant and it's amazing. And not like, not like those kind of wimpy, ra- you know, sometimes you like look faintly in the sky and you're like, oh, I think it's a rainbow. Like the ones, have you ever seen like the double or the triple or the ones that, I mean, it's just the whole sky. Like you often pull over and just stop just to look at it and say, my goodness. And that's what John is doing here. He's like, guys, it's looking at the one seated on the throne and around the throne, it takes, it takes your breath away. And he goes on in verse four, around the throne, not only a rainbow around the throne, but around the throne, almost like in concentric circles. Around the throne were 24 thrones and seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. Now, there's a fair bit of disagreement around, okay, who are the identity of these elders? Are they angels? Are they people? Um, Here's what I think most people seem to agree on is that they do seem to represent the people of God. They represent, you've got 12 tribes in the Old Testament, you've got 12 apostles in the New Testament, and we said, right, 12 is this number that represents, uh, in some ways, the full people of God, and 12 and all the things that it can add up to. So the fact that there are 24 thrones around, one, it speaks to the majesty of the one throne, that there are 24 other thrones around his throne, and these elders who have white garments, right, they're pure and they're holy in some ways themselves, they've got golden crowns on their heads, they have some authority and power, and yet they gladly take their crowns off and as we'll see, throw them before the throne and say, man, holy are you and you alone. And they represent the people of God gathered around the throne, worshiping forever. He goes on in verse five, and from the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. Most people would say that's a reference to the Holy Spirit. And before the throne, there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. Once again, just the radiance of God. Fair bit of interpretation on does the sea of glass represent like the end of the earth and the beginning of heaven? Does it represent the chaos? The sea was often representative of chaos in the Bible, the forces of evil, and yet notice before the throne of God, if that's true, the forces of evil, (laughs) they've been stilled, right? It's like glass. And when you get to the end of Revelation, when Jesus completes his work, it says there is no more sea. Because one day evil will be done forever when Jesus wipes every tear from every eye. You also get, when you read this, you should think back to Exodus. Do you remember when Moses went up on the mountain in Exodus? If you remember that story right, Exodus. He goes up on the Mount, Mount Sinai and it's rumblings of thunder and peals of lightning and the people are terrified. And here, once again, we see the full power of God. And yet what's so beautiful is it's not everybody terrified. It's the people of God getting to worship because of the work of the Lamb that we'll see in chapter five. Point being, John looks in 
And as we said last week, when he gets a vision of God, when, when Jesus says, I want to I peel back the curtain for you and show you what's really going on right now at the heart of ultimate reality, he doesn't see God and, and respond casually. Oh, neat. He sees God and says, man, I, I can barely describe him to you. He is that glorious, holy, and powerful. And around the throne, let's keep going, on each side of the throne are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind, representative of the fact they see everything. God sees all that is going on. Sometimes you wonder and I wonder, God, do you see what's going on in my life right now? Answer, yes. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. Once again, we could honestly, like, like books have been written on what are the four living creatures? And uh, it seems like they're a combination of what Isaiah, see, uh, Isaiah the prophet sees in chapter 6 and Ezekiel the prophet sees in chapter 1 and these creatures called the cherubim and the seraphim and they see creatures very similar to these around the throne, but I don't want us getting lost there. Pretty much everyone says, man, they seem to be these angelic beings with incredible power and they seem to represent all creation. Mankind animals of every kind, they represent. You've got all creation, but here's the thing, right? And I don't want us to get lost. I think the most important thing we need to note here, right? The holiness and the power of God. And then as it comes to the elders and the four living creatures, rather than trying to get lost in the like, well, what order of angels are they? And what, note what they're doing. That I think is the most important. What are they doing? These creatures that clearly have power in their own right. These creatures that are amazing just to look at. These 24 elders that clearly have some authority and power. What are all of them doing? They're not looking at themselves. And they're not looking around going, you're awesome. They are all focused on one thing and one person. The God who has created them. And they are casting down their crowns as we're going to see. And the angel, well, let's read it, right? Verse 8, 9, 10, and 11. And the four living creatures... Each of them with six wings are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night, they never cease to say, holy, holy, holy. In Hebrew, there's not really a way to say holiest, so they just repeat it, <laughs> right? In Greek, right, to say that over and over and over, like holy, holy, holy. Holiest is the Lord God Almighty. The Greek word there literally means all might. Like he just has all power unto himself, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come, who always has been, who is right now, and who always will be. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns down before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. I think the most important thing to note here is whatever these beings are, whatever they fully represent, all of heaven, all created beings, all are centered around the throne and they are worshiping and saying, holy, holy, holy are you, Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. I've got three things I want to point out. I'm going to pray for us, and then I want to point out these, these three things as maybe some ways of application. Father, I'm reminded right now of what 
Nancy Guthrie said in her book, uh, Blessed, she said, our primary challenge with reading Revelation will not be understanding it, but in aligning our lives with it, responding to it. Father, the primary challenge for us is not in um, the debate. Father, the primary challenge for us is in simply responding to these images of you, responding to the fact that all of creation is worshiping and saying, what does this mean for me? And how do I live my life aligned with the king of the universe? So, Father, as we uh, note a few things here, as we go through just three things, implications and applications of this, will you help us, Father, not to be unchanged? I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, first thing, there's one ultimate throne with one ultimate king. There is one ultimate throne and one ultimate king. I want to remind us, right, why do I think that's so important from this text? Why, why point that out? Let's be reminded of the context into which John is speaking. And Jesus is speaking to John, and then John is writing this to these churches all over the first century. I already told you, 40,000 Christians killed. Coming from the throne of Caesar is persecution and intense pressure on Christians. And my guess is it was very tempting and sometimes maybe this overwhelming feeling of, man, it seems like that throne has all authority. It seems like the one seated on the Roman throne, Caesar, he's got total control, it seems like, over our lives and the things we do, and he's able to take even our very life. And so maybe there's this temptation to say, man, is anyone up there? Is anyone truly in charge over the earthly authorities? And Jesus says, John, I, want, I know you're exiled right now. I know you're sitting alone on an island right now and things don't look that great and things don't feel that great and it seems pretty dark, but I want to peel back the curtain for you and just give you a little sneak peek into heaven itself and tell you what's going on here. There is one throne around which everything is centered. The creation centered around it. The angels centered around it. Beauty centered around it. All centered around one throne. And I want to remind you, John, and I want to remind you, church, and I want to remind you, Christian, as you live this life, there is only one throne, and that throne is occupied. God himself sits upon it, and his rule is unchallenged, and it is unchanged, and it is not in question. And no matter what's going on, just remember, there's only one ultimate throne and there's only one ultimate king and he sits on it. And, and I know that creates a bit of a tension for us because we say, okay, I, I believe that's true, but Lord, sometimes it doesn't feel that way. Well, if you're on your throne and you are this glorious and powerful, why does bad stuff still happen? Why do people here that seem in charge, why do they get their way sometimes? And listen, I, I don't, I don't have all the answers to that, but here are a couple of thoughts that come to mind. One, just remember what Jesus told his disciples to pray, right? Our Father in heaven, right? Our Father who is in heaven, your, hallowed be your name. And then he says what? Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He says, man, your will is done. Your kingdom has come in heaven. And now on earth, we're praying that kingdom forward. The kingdom of God is advancing, but it's coming up and clashing against the kingdom of darkness. And until Jesus comes back and finishes what he started, you and I are going to experience hardship and difficulty and the results of sin in this world and suffering. And so there's a tension we live with. And it's a tension I think we have to endure saying, 
I know as I follow Jesus, the kingdom, it's here in a sense, and it's not yet here in a sense. And until he comes back and wipes every tear from every eye, until the kingdom has come fully, fully, there's going to be suffering and hardship and this already but not yet tension in which we live. Secondly, I would say this. For those of us wrestling with how can a good God who sits on his throne, who's holy forever, be so good and be in charge, and yet, yet he lets such bad, thing ha- bad things happen, I would encourage you to think back to the very heart of the gospel and the cross. At the cross, a horrible thing is happening. The worst thing is that the Son of God, in all his perfection, love, and beauty, is being murdered by his own people that he came to save. And it's the worst day in the history of the world. And simultaneously, it's the best day. (laughs) Because through the worst thing, God, who is in control, is working your salvation and mine. And so in those moments where you look at life and go, I just don't see how anything good could come out of this. Just remember, that's exactly how the disciples felt as they watched Jesus suffocating on the cross. And then a few days later, things turned around pretty great in the empty tomb. All right, ultimate king, ultimate throne. Secondly, and this is so very connected to it, only God is worthy of our worship. And this is one that one, one ultimate throne, one ultimate king is more of a, hey, let's make sure that's in view. This one demands some action of us, maybe some repentance, probably repentance on all of our parts to some extent. In heaven, worship is the main activity. All creation is worshiping and proclaiming the holiness of God. And once again, we have to be reminded that John's living in a day and age where people worship thousands of different, I mean, a whole pantheon of gods. And added to that is, you must worship the emperor. You need to worship this man. He's got authority and power. And look at him in all his pomp and circumstance. You need to worship him as well. And Jesus is saying to John and reminding him, no, there's only one who is worthy of your worship and your adoration only one who is worthy for you to center your life around him. And here's, here's the, I think, the challenge for us. So we can read this and go, great, I'm not worshiping Caesar. I feel like I'm good, right? I know that was their challenge, but I think, I think John's words here are just as applicable for us today as they were for the first century Christians. Their application, their pain point was, hey, you've got Caesar there saying, you must worship me. And only God is worthy of worship. For us, most of us don't, I don't think, worship political figures, right? Some of us may. Um, that's, that we've talked about that before. There's a little bit of irony, I think, to every four years, right? Next year, we're going to be right back in the heat of it, right? An election year again, and there'll be signs everywhere and commercials everywhere, and people are going to spend billions of dollars trying to convince all of us one person can solve all the problems, and it's a little bit ironic. And every four years, it's like the big buildup, and then we all learn, hey, that person doesn't have the power to do that. <laughs> and yet some of us, we, we still fall into that, right? Maybe this person will bring salvation. No, there's one who brings salvation, and it's not, it's not a political candidate. I don't think most of us probably worship political figures, but 
We, we privatize this a bit, right? That doesn't mean there aren't Caesars in your life and in mine. They're, they're private for us, and they take some forms. Let me try to point out a few of them. For some of us, romance is Caesar. Our spouse, girlfriend, boyfriend, or even just the hope of a future romance. You can, you can hear the language of worship in our love songs, right? In our cult. I can't live without you. Life has no meaning without you. You are my everything. You'll be my honeysuckle. I'll be your honeybee. Okay, in fairness, I don't think that's worship. I just really like that one, right? It's, uh, <laughs> it's just it's kind of goofy, so I, I thought it was funny. Anyway, you hear it, right? In the way that we sing about one another, in the way that we sing about love, it's the language of worship. And sometimes the problem is, man, when we actually embrace that and you begin to worship your spouse or you begin to worship romance and you're looking for that person to provide you with everything, you crush them. They're not designed for that. And they're always in some form or fashion going to disappoint you. Don't ask your spouse. Don't ask a girlfriend or a boyfriend. Don't, Don't build your identity on them. Build it on Christ. Let them be your spouse or a boyfriend or a girlfriend. Don't look to this to provide you with something it was never meant to provide. For some of us, it's not romance. It's our kids. And maybe we don't use the language of worship toward them. Maybe we do. But the reality is, right, so did you notice around the throne it was, hey, what's everyone centered around? Around the throne. Around the throne, the 24 thrones. Around the throne, the four living creatures. Around, everything is centered around the throne. And the reality for some of us is our lives are not centered around the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. For some of us, it's centered around our kids. And guys, we live in a culture that very much encourages this. I don't know that any of us are immune from it. I'm not. And listen, parenting requires an enormous amount of work and attention and time. Like, that's a, that's a good and right thing. But for some of us, we've got we've to look into our hearts and say, man, have I, have I forgotten that my kids are given to me by God and I am to parent them toward him, not to use him to try to parent them? He's the end, not them. And some of us, right, if we're honest, it's like, The song is going on and the creatures are singing. All creation is worshiping the God of gods, the Lord of lords and the King of kings. And we're like, yeah, that's great. But my kid's got another event I need to get to. And if we're honest, our hearts are centered. Our worship and adoration is centered fully and squarely on them. And and it's not good for us and it's not good for them. And so the call today is, hey, a call to repentance. To say, Lord, Maybe I need to change some things with the schedule, and maybe it's just I need, to, I need to change some things in here. Lord, I need you to come and remind me that my identity, my first identity is not as dad. My first identity is as son, and only when I'm living out of my gospel identity that I am his can I parent my kids rightly and healthfully. For some of us, it's not kids, it's money. I notice in myself that sometimes the first question to my mind about everything is, well, how much does that cost? <laughs> Anyone else do that? How much does that cost? And listen, I, maybe that's just like a, you're frugal, you like to save, but maybe that's indicative of something going on in our hearts where it's, man, money's the driving decision for everything. If everything in your life just gets quantified down to, well, how much does that cost? There may be a problem. 
I can't answer that for you. You got to do a little bit of heart digging there and say, Lord, will you help me to see this? This is maybe a little more comical one, but sometimes I hear folks, and listen, if you love to DIY, like good for you. I don't, I don't understand you, but I respect you, right? Like, great job. But sometimes I hear people and I'm like, they're like, yeah, you know, I was going to buy it, but it would have cost me 200 bucks. I just did it myself. And they spent like 76 hours, right, doing this thing. And they're like, yeah, but I saved $72. And it's like, did you at all calculate how much time that cost you? Like, and a little bit less comically, like how much time away from the family was that? How much time of other things that you could have been doing? And that wasn't even a thought in your mind, like spouse lost out, kids lost out, friends lost out, but dang it, I saved 72 bucks, right? So it's worth it. And that's the only thing that sort of calculates for us is everything's just down to dollars and cents. If our hearts are centered around money, if that's the driving motivational factor in everything that we do, there's a worship problem. And it's a call to repentance to say, Lord, I can't center myself around this stuff. It's a tool. It's a great tool. Use it. Don't worship it. For some of us, it's career. Your life is centered around your work. That's a temptation for many of us, if we're honest. Spouse, kids, the Lord himself always takes sort of a backseat. And everything is about achievement at work. It dominates your life, your time, your thinking. That's sort of the throne of your life. For some of us, it's, it's athletics and our academics and the, just the sense of achievement, right? It, that's, that's why, for, if we're honest, right, college students, if you, high school students, you're like, man, if, if I don't do well in school, it's not like a bad day. It's an identity crisis. And if that's the case for you, it may be there's a worship problem. And then for some of us, or perhaps all of us, right, the temptation to worship just being liked just having the applause and being liked by other people. All, listen, none of us are exempt from this. None of us are. Why do I say that? Because all of us were created to worship. We were created by God for God, to enjoy Him forever, to glorify Him. We will worship something. At the heart of sin is this, man, I'm not worshiping the one that I should. I'm worshiping something else. I am centering my life around something else. And so today, if through the word and by the power of the Holy Spirit, you're like, right now, I know what that thing is. The step for you today is to come to repentance. That conviction from the Holy Spirit leads to repentance. Repentance means a change of mind, which results in a change of heart, which results in a change of direction, a change in your life to say, Lord, I, want, I no longer want that thing to sit on the throne of my life. I want you. And then you make the necessary changes. Lord, help me. And here's the third thing. We can start rehearsing for eternity today. There's a choice before all of us. When we hear this, when we see this, when we behold what John has seen, there's a choice for all of us to say, no, no, no. (laughs) I'm going to keep my life centered around what I want. Or, Lord, I want to start today rehearsing for all eternity because in eternity for all those who are redeemed by the Lord we will spend an eternity worshiping him proclaiming his worthiness singing holy 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 is the Lord God almighty who was and is and is to come and listen worship is more than just a song 
As we sing here, right, as we gather as the church, yes, we are joining in the eternal worship service. But our worship is more than just a song. It's our lives. It's how we spend our time. It's our attitudes. It's our words. It's our devotion. It's our adoration. It's more than just a song. And you can start today rehearsing for all eternity. For some of us, it's going to be for the very first time saying yes to Jesus. For others of us, recommitting and reprioritizing. And, and let me close with this. Just the why behind the what. Like, you know, Kale, why, why do we lay this all? Why do we center around our lives around him? One, because he's worthy of it. He created all things. And by him, you and I exist. And then next week, we're going to see the lamb who was slain. Chapter 5, we're going to look at the lamb who was slain. And I just find this to be so beautiful. One of our pastors said it so well. He said, man, notice that the elders voluntarily throw their crowns down before the throne. In, in Caesar's day, defeated kings had to give their crowns to Caesar. And it was an act of humiliation and of forced submission. The people of God, you and me, we can voluntarily, gladly say, Lord, here it is. Why? Because Jesus first laid down his crown for you and for me. That God, that God so loved you and me that he sent his only son. And that son laid down his crown of glory and took on the crown of thorns and went to the cross and died in your place and rose again that you and I might have forgiveness and new life in him. And so out of just worshiped him, out of love, it's, it's not a forced submission, it's a glad. Lord, if you are that holy and that good and yet that loving and that merciful that you would love me that way personally, Jesus, if you would lay down your crown and take on the crown of thorns, then gladly, here is mine. I will worship you and you alone. Let me pray for you. Father, God, for some of us here today, um, this may be the first time that we say, man, I'm, I'm taking off the crown. I'm taking off um, my rights, my worship of self, and I'm laying it down at your feet. God, for some of us, this is the first time that we will have a radical recentering of our lives in saying yes to Jesus and saying, okay, from here on, I don't want my life to be about the culture's definition of romance. I don't want it to be about my kids. I don't want it to be about my work or my achievement. Many of those things are good things, but Lord, I don't want them to be God things. I want you and you alone to be the center of my life. If that's you right now, I want to invite you to pray. You pray with me where you are maybe for the first time just saying yes to Jesus. Jesus, my life is yours. You pray with me. Father, today I ask for the forgiveness of my sin. And Jesus, today I gladly throw down my crown before you because you gave up your crown and took up the crown of thorns. And Lord, today I want my life to be centered around you and you alone. Thank you for loving me the way that you do. If you prayed that with me, we're going to continue to pray here. Nobody's looking around at you. 
Nobody's gonna point you out. But if you prayed that with me, would you give me the privilege of just being the first person to know so that I can pray with you and for you? Just by slipping your hand up. Say, okay, I prayed that with you today. Yeah, you slip it up, you slip it right back down. Thank you, thank you. I see you, thank you. Father, we pray for those who just raised up their hands. God, for repentance and for faith. And that, Father, in the days ahead, though it may be hard, they would feel the overwhelming and sense the overwhelming joy of just having you at the center of their life. And then, God, I pray for all of us who know you already and love you. But maybe this morning there's just a call to recommitment and reprioritization. Some of us have become distracted. We've begun to center our lives on lesser things. Father, forgive us. If that's you, just will you just pray to the Lord, take a moment? Maybe you say to him that thing that you know has become the center. Offer that back to him. Ask him to change you from the inside out and recommit today. Father, we love you. And now here in a moment, we get to sing back to you, Lord. Thank you for who you are. It's in Jesus' name we pray.